Hi folks, as it happens, this is the last podcast. Uh, our dear friend, uh, colleague and um, fellow tortoise shack troublemaker, Dr. Vicky Conway recorded. I'm putting it out now to just de- just to demonstrate yet again how brilliant she was, how amazing she was, and how she shared her platform, helped uh, give a space for, for voices that needed to be heard. Uh, used her intelligence, intellect, expertise, and just incredible um, ability to get things done. Vicky was a change maker. Vicky really made a difference to so many. Um, we're going to miss her terribly, terribly. Rest in power, Vicky Conway. Thanks to everybody for their support and for, for sharing their memories of a wonderful woman. Again, We'll never forget you. Welcome to this episode of Police to Beat, the companion series to Police in Ireland, where we look at news events and research relating to policing in Ireland. Today, I am incredibly honoured to be joined by Dr. Cindy Joyce and Dr. Amanda Haynes of the University of Limerick, who are part of a team who've just published a hugely significant research report called Irish Travellers Access to Justice. And just while I'm here, I'm going to mention the other members, project members of the team, Olive O'Reilly, Margaret O'Brien, David Joyce and Jennifer Schwepp. This research, which, as we'll see, is completely novel in Ireland, has within days of publication already been presented to the UN Human Rights Committee. Um, So it's a really monumental piece of work. It covers a lot more than policing, but obviously for the purpose of this, we're gonna focus in on some of the findings relating to policing. Um, Amanda, would I start with you? Would you like to um, outline for us what the aim of the research was? Yes, absolutely. Um, the The purpose of this research really was to understand the relationship between Irish travellers and the courts. And I think we're really building on the shoulders of many of those who came before us who have looked at these issues, but uh, not necessarily connecting the police and the courts together with this kind of more holistic perspective on the criminal justice um, of the criminal justice system. Um, we were very aware in particular of um, Aon Mulcahy's work. Um, we were very aware of Dennis Bracken's work, the work of the um, Irish Penal Reform Trust in relation to, to travellers in prison. Uh, and so what we wanted to understand was from travellers' own point of view, from their own perspective, how did they perceive and experience the police and the courts in Ireland? Yeah, and we've talked about, you know, we've talked to Aegon actually previously on the podcast about that research. And we've talked as well about, obviously, the Iona and Human Rights Audit, which actually mm-hmm. found um, in the early 2000s that Angarda Siakona was um, institutionally racist. Um, so, yeah, that, that basis for what you're talking about. Cindy, I was really struck, I mean, even reading some of the opening pages of the report, the kind of connection that's made to traveller culture and how what the police do and how they use their powers and all of the criminal justice system. Like it's a real threat to traveler culture, isn't it? And it's it's very existence and survival. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was um I suppose part of um part of the excuse me. Absolutely. That was part of what the some of the participants talked to us talked about um, the historical policing of the community as a traditionally nomadic community and its relevance um, of of the historical um, part of that policing to today to today to their experiences upright up to today. So if we look at um, kind of the criminalisation of um, nomadism, for example, and um, if we look at kind of the role of the justice system in 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 their role in um, in the in the anti anti nomadic policies that um, have been produced um, in in numerous um, decades, and we can see kind of like with the findings of our research that lack of trust within the criminal justice system across the board has been um, embedded uh, within within the community, and we can see kind of like through our findings, kind of 
the everyday experiences of, of today's experience uh, connecting to the historical experience of the community as a nomadic, um, traditionally nomadic community. And I suppose if we're looking at our, our society as a whole, uh, we, we can't expect that um, the criminal justice system is going to be the exception in um, in how they view uh, the, the community as a um, as as uh, as a as a nomadic community, but also as a um, community that has been um, uh, particularly, I suppose, their um, traditional ways of life has been criminalised in that sense. So looking looking at looking at that sense, we can see that um, there has been many members of the community that has experienced. Um, the role of um, Angarda Shikana, for example, uh, coming into um, um, sites and the role in evictions, which would um, kind of um, bombard them, I suppose, with um, those experiences of today's experiences, um, for example, of being um, being stopped and being stopped and searched and um, through our findings, what we have found. Yeah, so you've got a double whammy there because you've got like specific powers that the police can use against people living these nomadic lives and the criminalization is to say that has happened of that and then how ordinary police powers are used and whether or not racism is a factor in that so you've got these two things going on i will say i disagree though that you know when you say the we shouldn't expect the criminal justice system to be an exception in that behaviour, I'm very much of the view that when we give any entity the kind of power that the criminal justice system has, we should absolutely expect them, you know, to uphold principles of non-discrimination and so on. Um, but that's a bee in my own bonnet. Um, so I, I which I just can't let past. So- absolutely. Yes. Um I think that um I think you're correct. We should we should um we should expect that. But I suppose yeah. coming from coming from the community myself, um, I suppose looking at um Irish society and the institutions um in Ireland as a whole, and I suppose that that um experience um throughout the whole institutions and uh with including the criminal justice system, I suppose that we can see that that I suppose for us that uh, we, we shouldn't um, expect to see any difference in the other institutions. Um, however, we do expect that that, that would be changed um, um, a, a, in the future and yeah. that they would do their utmost best to look at um, kind of policing in a human rights perspective, um, policing the community and not just, I suppose, the travel community, but all marginalised communities um, where, the, where there, there is a, a, an underpinning of the human rights principles in their policing for, for, for different communities. So we, we would expect that going forward in the future, and particularly, I suppose, to look at um, um, implementing um, some of our recommendations from our from our report, and to 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 work with to, to work with us to um, implement those rec- recommendations in order to make it a fairer um, justice system for the community. Yeah, and and obviously we'll get to the recommendations. And actually, you're making me think this point that while all of us should expect the institutions of the state to behave better than anyone and be the example when you're getting the opposite from them and they're using their powers in discriminatory ways like and you know we've talked about in other places but the 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 vehemence of that that violence and victimization that's experienced it's all the stronger when it comes from the state but i think that's going to be really clear when we talk about the findings um who'd like to chat to me about the methodology because it's a really impressive um scale of a report that you've done yeah i'll i'll talk about that vicky if that's okay yeah and uh yeah so the the project was envisaged prior to the pandemic, I should say. Um, the The initial application, I think, was submitted in the summer of 2019. And little back, did back in those heady back days. in those heady days of <laughs> unproblematic fieldwork, and uh, yeah, little did we know the difficulties that we were going to encounter. And we're, you know, we're very grateful to the Irish Research Council and the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission who funded us for for sticking with us, and to the University of Limerick, which is for supporting us as well through the kind of disruption that we experienced. Um, so the in, in in the end, post post COVID adjustments, which we had to make, um, we have conducted a, a survey uh, with members of the traveller community. In the end, three hundred and twenty six members of the traveller community, and the survey is very lengthy, and it was it quite a, a burden on the respondents, I think, to to ask them both to trust us with mm. these experiences. Um, 
um, which sometimes were very difficult, but more generally are difficult to share because they're founded in issues of mistrust and distrust. And so sharing them with um, a researcher, a stranger is particularly difficult. Um, also, often the engagements were very lengthy um, because of the extensiveness of the issues that we were talking to our survey respondents about. And also because respecting both the need to gather quantitative data, which is extremely persuasive to policymakers, and the oral traditions of the traveller community, the survey included both um, closed-ended questions and also open-ended questions where people got to talk um, at length about, about their own experiences, particularly their most positive and negative experiences um, with the police and with uh, judges. And so in addition to that, we also conducted 29 interviews with uh, individuals who work for traveller organisations, and that was uh, around the country. And we have uh, we've been very lucky to benefit from the expertise of the national traveller organisations on our advisory committee. So uh, Pavi Point, the Irish Travellers Movement, the National Traveller Women's Forum, Minkairs Widen, and also the Traveller Mediation Service were all represented on our advisory committee, um, along with a representative of the Department of Justice and a representative of Agartha Siakona. Um, but we wanted to ensure that we also included uh, understandings of travellers' experiences from those who were engaged with the community uh, regionally. Uh, and so that is what those 29 interviews did. And they gave us great insights into um, the, the question of whether there are significant regional differences or not, but also because they were conducted prior to the survey, they helped us to design a survey which was more relevant uh, and more appropriate. Uh, in addition to that, um, Cindy conducted uh, two focus groups to allow us to draw in, in particular, the experiences of older and younger travellers. Um, Younger travellers, um, of course, because the, the the population as a whole is is so youthful, and we only included people of age eighteen and above in our research was were particularly of interest to us to engage with through that focus group, uh, in an additional through an additional medium. Uh, and then also uh, older travellers in particular because of the, the life expectancy of the, the traveller population um, and the, the different demographics of the traveller population. We wanted to be particularly um, inclusive of older travellers' points of view, but also because the research is very interested in the intergenerational transmission mm. of perceptions of criminal justice institutions, but also strategies and tools for successful encounters with criminal justice institutions and for dealing with those encounters with criminal justice institutions. And this follows on um, from the work of people like Brunson and Weitzer um, in the United States who have looked at the, the intergenerational transmission of um, strategies for, in particular, dealing with the police in the African-American community um, there. Um, so these were the, the modes of data collection that we employed. We had also uh, hoped to conduct some analysis of police recorded data in relation to hate crimes um, uh, committed against the traveller community, but we were not permitted access to that data. We were, however, um, very much assisted by the, the uh, Irish Prison Service who provided us with access uh, to data uh, on committals uh, in order to uh, bring an additional layer to our research, which was really focused on travellers' access to justice in respect to police and the courts, but understanding the end point of involuntary encounters with the police and going through the justice system in terms of the overrepresentation of travellers in the prison system uh, is really important. We, we couldn't look at those two parts of the whole without looking at uh, the disproportionate numbers of travellers in prison as well. And am I right in thinking, um, I believe this was said at the launch, that one in 100 travellers, members of the traveller community in Ireland participated in this research? So in actual fact, because we only looked at the adult population, it's closer to one in 60 every of every adult travellers, uh, I'll try that again. <laughs> in actual fact, because we only looked at over 18s, the figures are closer to one in 60 adult travellers uh, in Ireland. Well, that's an incredibly high 
response rate, as it were, for any piece of research, which lends it just such incredible authenticity and accuracy um, far beyond anything that that I've encountered previously, it, it, like in any space. Um, and I think it's important just uh, people who are used to listening to police will know this. But if you're not, the guards don't currently record ethnicity of anyone that they have any interactions with. They don't publish data on how many stops and searches they conduct, on how many houses they search. They don't actually record data on how many people they arrest or detain. Um, they don't publish a whole lot of data on um, ethnicity membership of Mangar Shikana. So you were working in this totally vacuous space, but you also provide incredibly important data that we have never had before. Um, and we're going to talk about this across a range of themes. And there's a, I can't commend the report enough to anyone anyway interested. It's very accessible. Um, it's very well presented. It's it's quite a harrowing read. I found myself, I've had to pick it up and put it down and come back to it a couple of times. Um, and, you know, I deal with this stuff pretty much all the time, but the some of the rates, it's just quite shocking. Um, if I start with the victim stuff, I mean, like, you know, um, half of the people that you spoke to have been victims of crime in the previous five years, wasn't it, Cindy? It was, yeah. Half of our um, survey respondents had experienced um, um, uh, being a victim of a crime in the previous five years to our research. And um, and I suppose when we're looking when we're looking at that um, of those um, of those that had experienced um, uh, being a victim of crime, only um, 63% said that that they didn't report their experience because because they didn't trust the guards um, yeah. uh, in reporting their um, experience. So we can see then that the, the, those majority that did trust the guards and reported their experience had a, had a negative experience in that reporting. And and not just a majority. I mean. Was it? I sorry. I've taken some notes on this, but please uh, fill in around. But like eighty three percent saying they didn't feel they were taken seriously. Like these are just absolutely mm-hmm. shocking levels. Absolutely, yeah. And um, we can see, like, um, I suppose the high levels of um, of of that lack of trust in the criminal justice system as a whole for the community across the board. Um, and I suppose particularly when we're when we're talking about victims of crime, you know, as 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 was stated, half half of our survey respondents had experienced um, uh, being a victim of crime in those in, in those um, previous five years and not having that trust to be able to um, report those, because I suppose some of them. Um, some of our survey respondents uh, talked about uh, reasons um, and past experiences when they did report a crime to the police and the police response to it, that it was either um, a no response or when they did come out, uh, for example, to um, to Traveller Pacific Homes, that they would um, be looking at other issues instead of the issue that they were called for. So, for example, looking, looking around the halting site for um, tax and insurance on cars and looking for um, other people on the site that would have nothing to do with the victim that had called the police out in the first place. So immediately that um, that trust that, that that the person had in the first place to make that step in, in order to call the police to come out um, is completely broken down. And then then uh, when that is done in um, particularly in a Traveller Pacific um, accommodation setting where there are other members of the community uh, watching this and experiencing um, the, 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 the police uh, checking for tax and insurance, that they have this um, knowledge then and the lack of trust that in future, if they were um, to be a victim of a crime, that, that they might not report it to um, On Garda Shikana because of these experiences that they have witnessed and um, been part of. And that's that, you know, Amanda, you mentioned earlier that transgenerational point. So one person has an individual experience, other people hear of it, they see it um, and that alters their behaviour. And then over time, this becomes, you know, almost hereditary, isn't it? Which, is that a fair thing to say, Amanda? I, I think it is. Um, we were surprised nonetheless at the proportion of travellers who reported a crime who would actually recommend to other people to do so. 
Um, and this is despite the fact that only 15% of travellers who reported a crime were satisfied with the service that they received compared to 61% of the general population who were asked the same question. Um, and I think that it, it shows um, a desire to have equal access uh, to an equitable policing service into an equitable criminal justice system and that for the traveller community issues of over-policing are incredibly significant but so are issues of under-policing mm. um, and that under-policing is really impactful on people's lives um, and it, the, we did, as Cindy said, we heard, you know, some very worrying kind of perceptions of people that particularly if crime was between, it happened between members of the traveller community, if it was intra-community crime, that there was a sense that travellers would be left to deal with it themselves or that mm. travellers, the perception was that travellers should deal with it themselves. Um, and then I suppose the alternative perception that if it was a, a an altercation, for example, involving both a traveller and a member of the settled community, that travellers' sense is that they will not be believed over a member of the settled community. Um, we were particularly concerned, I think, in respect to people who experience domestic violence uh, and the impact on their capacity to report, which is something that organisations like the Galway Traveller Movement have previously raised and documented, um, where uh, a woman might feel that they are bringing down the guards in their community because mm -hmm. it is not only uh, her home that the guards will enter if she reports a domestic violence incident, um, but also the, as Cindy said, very much, very commonly, this idea that the the cars and vehicles uh, of her neighbours will also be examined to see if there's any signs of other illegality on the site, uh, and that that's really worrying. Yeah, I mean, even for me, there are a few things, and it's the same points you're making, like you know, one coating. There were two men arguing and fighting and I rang a station. I told them and they said, look, we can't babysit no one for you um, or, you know, in relation to domestic violence. Um, you're afraid to go to the guard now because maybe your son has no tax in his car. Um, and it is it is really striking. And as you say, like the point of this is not to we're not trying to deter people from going to the guards, even in doing this. Um, as you say, people want that policing service. It's about highlighting what needs to change um, and that people are having such an extent of an, a discriminatory, if not racist service, um, you know, and that that is a very strong experience that a lot of people have had. And that emerges across the report. Um, so I suppose one of the, you know, and look, everyone, this whole chapter is on all of this and we could spend the day recording this, I think, but we will have to kind of move through it. Um, stop and search, which is an issue that I'm always really interested in because, um, as you described, I think, as involuntary contact with the police. Um, and it's something that, you know, can leave a real scar on people, I think, in terms of their experience of the police. It feels like a pretty innocuous thing being stopped on the street and being asked a few questions, but actually the impact can be quite strong. What kind of find, findings did you make in relation to that, Cindy? Um, yeah, so so I suppose when, when we're looking at um, those findings, we can see particularly, I suppose, around um, the ethnic and racial profiling experiences and perceptions of the community there, we can see that 59% of participants um, felt that the last time that they were stopped, um, that they were stopped just on the basis of their traveller um, identity. And some of the reasons that they gave for those um, perceptions were, for example, that um, that the Garda knew that they were traveller, the Garda that stopped them knew that they were traveller, or the Garda um, that stopped them had a reputation for stopping travellers. And also that um, perhaps the, the, the Garda that, that, that stopped him would say something about them being a traveller or about travellers in generally. So we can see then that those 59% um, of participants felt that the, that the reason, that the only reason that they were stopped was was um, because of their traveller identity and the frequency of, of those stops as well. We found um, quite um, surprising, I suppose, to say the least, um, when, when, um, when this uh, research was being conducted, as Amanda stated, at the beginning it was being conducted in the middle of um, a pandemic and mm -hmm. so um, our um, 
our interviews were done uh, via um, via digital um, technology, which is uh, which is would be um, quite difficult for for communities, I suppose, that is experiencing um, um, that that digital gap in in society. Where, but um, however, I suppose it just. Um, it goes to show, I suppose, the, the engagement that we had uh, with the community um, tr throughout that, the, the positive engagement. But um, during the COVID, um, we found surprising that um, that uh, the frequency of the stops during COVID, where 54% um, said that they had been stopped more during COVID. However, we found that 32% had been stopped the same and 14% um, said that they had been stopped less during COVID, which was quite surprising. Um, yeah. which, with um, the restrictions that had been put in place um, during COVID at that time. Yeah, because the general population was experiencing more stops and searches, obviously, during that, that time frame than they normally would. I'm really yeah. struck... Sorry, Amanda. No, sorry, oh, go sorry. ahead. Yeah, I'm really struck by that point of, like, so many believing they're stopped because they're a member of the traveller community. Like that idea that something you can't change, like just something that's so core to you, that's, you know, such a part of your identity is being used against you um, by the, the, you know, the the agency of the state that's there to, um, you know, protect communities and investigate crime and so on. That must be I mean, maybe people normalise to it to a certain extent, but on a level that has to be really hurtful. I, I think so. Um, and one of the things I'd point out here as well is that the data that we have on racial profiling and stops and search searches maps onto the data um, or the findings rather of the Fundamental Rights Agency Traveller and Roma study in Ireland where um, they asked travellers precisely the same question um, about uh, the, the degree to which they feel that they had been um, ethnically, I'll try that again, <laughs> um, Yes, and one of the things that I'd like to point out here is that in respect to the 59% of travellers who um, believe that they were racially profiled in the last the last time that they were stopped by Garthi, this maps within 1% onto the EU Fundamental Rights Agency finding on the same issue uh, from the data that, that they gathered in their 2019 survey of travellers in Ireland. So we're in relation to racial profiling, we're, we're not the first to identify this mm. issue. We're really confirming something that the Fundamental Rights Agency um, has raised and documented previously. One of the other things I think that is um, useful to note and, and something that I think we will explore perhaps more going forward is that among those uh, who were stopped, those who were stopped on foot seem to have been more likely to have a negative experience with the police. And I think in the qualitative data, um, some of the, the the stops on foot um, particularly were particularly impactful for me, I think, uh, in terms of the, the kinds of experiences that people had and the kinds of emotional responses that they had to, to being stopped. And um, particularly, for example, where they're they're young people being stopped or they're where they're stopped being stopped as part of, of a group. Um, but whereas for, I think to, to some extent for all of us, we can imagine the idea of a vehicular stop of being, you know, stopped um, on the road or stopped at a checkpoint. Um, how, many, how many of us are ever outside of the issue of racial profiling? How many of us are ever stopped on foot on the street? Um, but for travellers, this is happening. Is this happening regularly? And when it does happen very frequently, it's not a positive experience. Yeah. And I mean, when you ask that, how many of us, like we know from previous episodes of police, like that really we have to say how many of us white settled people um, have experiences of this. Um, you know, young people have huge experiences of this. People of different ethnic minorities have frequent experiences of the stop and searches. I was really struck as well by you know, some of the findings around provocation about how even once the stop had commenced, that sometimes certain language, um, the K word, all of this kind of thing was being used by police and it was provoking people um, and generating reactions. And it, you even go to a point of making a finding around what you call, and I thought this was very powerful, ceremonies of degradation. Um, what were those, Cindy? Um, yeah, so so I suppose, um, for, for, I'll try that again. 
Yeah, so for, for our participants and 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 for those that, that were surveyed, um, some of them described uh, really really distressing um, experiences and circumstances where they were um, where they had a negative encounter with a, a member of Vanguard Shikana, and um, and I suppose when you're talking about the the ceremonies of degradation, we're we're talking about where um, where the where where the community felt members of the community felt that uh, they were being um, sometimes mocked and that their identity would be would be mocked um, and that um, they would be called, as you said, um, the K word would be called used um, to them. So I suppose those those um, those experiences um, I suppose direct experiences, but also um, people that um, the intergenerational um, knowledge that that would be passed on to as well within the community, not just I suppose the immediate family and the immediate um, community that might be living um, in the area, whether that's in Traveller Pacific um, uh, group housing or whether it's in um, standard housing. Um, these these um, these narratives of um, ceremonies of degradation are passed on um, throughout the community, and they are passed. On from one um, from one to one to another where they have happened, and uh, that those um, those those narratives are are seen as uh, to be happening on a regular basis um, for the community where it. Um, where it, it breaks down um, even even that little bit of trust that some some members might have with the criminal justice system, that that trust will will break when they hear these stories of the degradation, but also when when some of them actually witness um, these um, these experiences happening on site as well. I can imagine. I mean, when we think of degradation, we can all you know the idea of being degraded, like. <sighs> we can all imagine how much you would want to avoid that situation and you do anything for it. And I suppose it's really important to point out that that, that word has real significance in human rights terms because, you know, there is a complete ban on inhuman and degrading treatment. And if people are being degraded, then the state is overtly breaching people's rights. And, the, you know, there's no halfway house on, on that human right. It's an absolutely um, protected right. So any, any reports that go to that nature are, are deeply concerning. Absolutely. And I think that um, as well for some of our uh, survey respondents, particularly, I suppose, um, young men, you know, would have talked about um, being provoked by by some members of of Vanguard Shikana and being provoked to to um, to be upset and to act in, in in a certain way in order to justify them being stopped and um, perhaps um, sometimes arrested. The um, for us the 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 concept of ceremonies of de- degradation come um, from sociology and from a, a particular body of theory within sociology, and there, it, the idea is about a public ritual mm-hmm. in which the the presence of people from the the dominant culture is necessary to. The, the degradation process um, where an individual is made lesser, uh, not only in their own eyes, but in the eyes of, of those individuals from the, the dominant culture. And if I could just read to you, uh, if that's okay, a, a, a quote that we actually used in the launch, uh, and it's from a mother who says, it was when they followed me from a town to 10 mile to my kid's local school. No need to use blue lights or the sirens, but use to intimidate me and my children and my husband and then to take a big mad drug search and my children and other children watching them from the school ground. That was disgusting. In front of my children, in front of the principal of the school, in front of a child, the resource teacher, watching everything from the school. And so for us, that encapsulates exactly what a ceremony of degradation is, mm-hmm. um, being made lesser in the eyes of the, the dominant culture. Um, and unfortunately, the there, there was elements of this which were um, very much evident uh, in that data. And, you know, it's not like I, it's making me think of like I, I've spoken to a man before who suffered a miscarriage of justice in America. And he talks about that moment of arrest from his house when the neighbours saw that that was the worst moment in everything. And that's the bit that you can never shake. Right. There'll always be that seed of doubt in everyone else's mind. Um, one of the things that I think is really important about this work, among so many other things, is like if people look at research in the UK, let's say on the experiences of 
um, black individuals in the criminal justice system, you you can track and mark, right, how many people are stopped and searched, how many are arrested, how many are detained, charged, prosecuted and end up in prison. And you can you can watch the attrition through the system and you can see how dominant um, in, in that instance black people are um, among the data. Um, and so, you know, when we get to the figures, let's say an arrest, you found that 20% of the people you had spoken to have been arrested in the previous five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of this data, I'm just like, if these figures were replicated in the white settled community, the guards would be being disbanded tomorrow. Um, but I find that figure particularly shocking. Um, Cindy, what kind of experiences do people have who were arrested by the guards? Um, yeah, for, for 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 different people, they had different experiences, and um, I suppose um, one one fifth of our survey respondents reported being arrested in the prior um, five years to that. Um, some people just once, others more than once throughout those five years, and I suppose the impact that that that, that would have on them. <clears throat> On them, the impact that that would have on them and 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 their families and the communities, but I suppose also um I suppose the situations where where some people talked about being in custody, and not um having access to medication, for example, we had some people talk about talk about the impact of that, but also we had some people talk about the impact of um being um being degraded uh, while being in custody as well. Talked about being hearing um some anti-traveller language from some members of um of the guard. And also, I suppose um, when we're looking at um, kind of their experiences within, within that system, there was there was um, there was a, a small number of people that that reported um, being arrested uh, wrongfully wrongfully arrested, um, and um, and I suppose the impact that that has on them and their families as well is just um, horrendous, and we can see that it's very distressing for the, for the, for the families and the communities. Mm, and and quite a few reporting that they didn't feel safe or they weren't given the right of access to a lawyer. I mean, one of the things that, and, and I know you talk about it in the report around mental health, you know, myself and Yvonne have been doing a lot of work around experiences of custody. And, and for anyone who has any level of mental illness or any concerns around their mental health, custody is an enormously triggering and difficult experience. And as we know from elsewhere, you know, mental illness is a really serious issue in the traveller community that's been deeply neglected. Um, Did you have any comments in relation to that around how mental health intersected at some of these findings? I I think that um, certainly there were comments about the impact upon mental health of over-policing uh, and of the the sense that involuntary contact with the, the police was to some extent inevitable. Mm. So yes, there were also comments on the mental health impacts on children, um, particularly in relation to search of the home where mm. children would be uh, in some cases, present for those searches. Um, so, yeah, that certainly did arise as an issue. In terms of policing more generally, we were really pleased to see the the piloting of the interdisciplinary crisis intervention teams in Limerick. Um, and one of our recommendations is that those need to be really rolled out urgently across the, mm. the country. Um, Cindy mentioned the issue of provocation um which came up in a in a small number of cases but i i do think it is really important to note that where you have a community that has this long history of conflictual relationships with the criminal justice system and where you have criminal justice professionals who are in the vast majority drawn from a settled white population who is known to hold um, racist views against travellers. We have to be really careful of what people, what what we are primed for in mm. encounters between those two groups. Um, and so I think that the potential for these, um, I'm going to start that again, Vicky, if that's okay, because I'm getting my issues mixed up. Um, 
so yes, so we were very pleased to see the piloting of the mental health crisis intervention teams, uh, which are happening in Limerick. Uh, and we do think that those need to be rolled out uh, across the country. Um, certainly there is an epidemic of mental health difficulties uh, in the, the traveller community uh, and difficulties in accessing supports. And I think that, you know, given the rate of involuntary contact with the police that we see and the arrest rate that we have documented in this study, those um, crisis intervention teams can be seen only uh, as a positive. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And, you know, one of the descriptions that's been used, even and I have a mental illness and I talk about it quite relatively, really. But like someone said to me recently, you know, when you're in crisis and you're at a four out of five or five out of five, the most innocuous thing and the way your brain interprets it in that moment and you can lose it altogether and you're you're now uncontainable. Whereas somebody who's trained and has the right language and can respond appropriately can bring the four out of five down to a three out of five and suddenly we're at a crisis space. And so I can imagine how, you know, someone who's in difficulty and someone's called the guards and the guard goes, who are your parents? And suddenly you think, you know, your ethnicity or your community is being brought into it. And that triggers one reaction. So those crisis interventions team, and we've we've even done a whole podcast on them. They're so important. Um, but it's also not just about relying on them. It's about every Garda having the level of knowledge that's required and really strong communication skills. You mentioned Amanda um, earlier, something about the, sorry, you didn't, we'll have to, that was in the bit that you cut, so we'll have to cut this. I, can I come in there and then I can yeah. go on to that? Um, so one of the things that we found in this research is that where travellers have positive encounters with the, the guards, one of the things that they're characterised by really is procedural justice. And one of the things that we find in um, research on procedural justice training is that communication is really, really important mm. um, to operationalising the principles of procedural justice in practice. Um, so, yes, you're, you're quite right that the crisis intervention teams are essential. And at the same time, they do not substitute for having a police service where every member is trained in de-escalation and trained in effective communication. And also where we recognise the biases that we may bring with us mm. as members of a society in which these prejudices are embedded and that by acknowledging them, we can move forward to engage uh, with training in a very meaningful way to try to address them and to try to prevent them um, shaping these encounters that we have with communities that unfortunately we have so few positive platforms for engagement with. Um, and I think it was one of the things that has been said to me previously by uh, members of the Gardaí who we've interviewed when we've been conducting research on um, on hate crimes more uh, more generally uh, and minority communities more generally. And they've talked about the fact that very often, um, particularly with communities where there's a, a great deal of social distance, as there is with travellers between the, the dominant culture and that community, there's so few opportunities, so few platforms for positive engagement mm -hmm. outside of these kind of involuntary contacts where people are almost primed for things to go wrong, particularly where the community may, for the reasons we see in this re report, perceive the police to be a threat. And the the police, in turn, may have negative perceptions of the community. So we, we really need training across the board, effective training, where the effectiveness of that training is monitored uh, in order to ensure that these types of implicit biases that we carry with us um, are recognised and addressed. And that point about um, space and also voluntariness, is, it's a really interesting theme in the report because obviously you have the situations of victims who make that contact with the guards. It may be in a station or they may be calling to them to the home. You have the stops that are happening and the arrests often in quite a public way. But another really significant issue that comes up in the report is searches of the home. Um, Cindy, what did you find in relation to these? Yeah, um, so I suppose with the searches of the home, um, it was um, 
kind of very very distressing um, findings that we have found, you know, and the impact that it would have on on children as well when it happened. Particularly, um, some some of our survey respondents told us about um, the times that it would be commonly commonly happening in which they called um, searches of the home, raids of the home, and it would usually occur um, in the morning times just as the children were um, either before they went out to school or on their way out to school. And we can see um, through through um, through our findings that of those of those that had experienced a search of the home, that only 11% um, stated that, that 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 they had um, seen a search warrant um, uh, being produced. So those are really kind of um, concerning um, statistics to find, because as we know, um, um, searches of the home without a, without a warrant can only be done in very limited um, circumstances. And when we're talking about um, um, with, with 11% of our community just saying that um, that that they had search warrants, we're, we're talking about high high levels of um, numbers of people that have experienced um, searches of the homes without um, the use of a search warrant, which is really distressing and which is contrary to the constitutional rights of Ireland as well. And as you say, the impact on on everyone in the home and particularly on young people to have that experience of the police coming into Absolutely. your home. Absolutely, yeah, and, and particularly I suppose um, the impact that it would have on children. Some of our some of our respondents um, talked about the traumatization that the children would experience um, during during these these um, searches of the homes, and a small number um, talked about children's school bags being searched on their way um, out to school as well, and sometimes in front of um, other other school children that would be on a school bus, for example. You know, so just just I suppose the impact and the traumatization of that itself on the child. Um, really really makes a, a huge impact um on the community and in how they and how they view the policing and how they, they view the police from a very very early age you know so that that perception of the police not being not being a, a, a protector for the community is set into um, a young person's mind at a very young age because of these experiences so we're seeing here very definitively in your findings a community that is both under-policed when it needs the police and over-policed outside of that. And yet a community that wants a policing service, that has has needs in this space, that has concerns about its safety just as anyone else does um, and wants that. What needs to happen um, and what are your recommendations for, for going forward? Uh, one of the key things that we need, Vicky, is data. And yeah. you mentioned the um, the fact that in the UK, for example, with um, racialized minorities and ethnic minorities in the UK, in many cases, but not in respect to travellers, I should say, um, there is sufficient data to be able to um, track people's treatment and experiences really from the point of recording to the point of, of sentencing. Um, I would note that the Lamy Review in the UK did state that in respect to travellers, they they can't drill down into the data in the the same sense. So this seems to be maybe a transnational uh, problem for the the traveller community. But certainly in Ireland, as you've said, we don't uh, have ethnic identifiers um, used by the police or by the courts. Um, we have seen them introduced by the the prison service, which is um, a really important uh, achievement. Um, although the degree there to which the data is necessarily complete. Um, remains an issue, but I think as these things bed down, that will uh, improve. We have to have that data. We have to have um, official data, not just to be reliant upon independent studies, which are funded intermittently, mm. but to have administrative data, which is analysed and published transparently every year to tell us about the rates of arrest, the rates of prosecution, the rates of conviction, the types of sentences that people receive. Um, and that not just for the traveller community, um, but for all racialized and ethnic minority communities in this country. And indeed, we could expand beyond that as well. In addition to that, we think in respect to the traveller community, because the extent of the issues of mistrust are um, so great at this point, and because that legacy and that history is so long, that we really need a strategy dedicated to addressing the traveller uh, community's relationship with the criminal justice system. 
Um, and one which does not simply perceive travellers as prisoners. The treatment of travellers in the prison system is incredibly important. But as this report shows, travellers are not just prisoners. Travellers are also victims of crime. Travellers are also people who are subject to stops and searches. Travellers are also, in a way that this study perhaps didn't address, people who go in to have documents uh, validated and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, and people who want the same kind of service from our police and from our courts uh, as everybody else in this country. And we need a, a, a whole system uh, examination of that relationship and a strategy to, to address it. Um, in addition to that, one of the things that we really need is to look at our complaints mechanisms. Mm. One of the things that I think that we found most worrying uh, in this data was the degree to which people who were having negative experiences did not make complaints. Now, in some cases, that was because people were not aware of how to make a complaint. But in other cases, it was because people were afraid of the negative impacts for them of making a complaint, afraid either in relation to the police or in relation to judges, that if they made a complaint, that it would be known and that they would be targeted either by a specific Garda or judge or by the Garda or the judiciary more generally. And this really speaks to a lack of confidence that people have in our complaints mechanisms. Um, and of course, in relation to the, the judiciary, we, we don't yet have the development of that promised uh, complaints mechanism. And that is something that really needs to be addressed. And certainly one of the things that I think are highlighted um, is that those travellers who were aware, for example, um, of GSOC were also aware of the role of Gardaí in many cases, uh, investigating other Gardaí, and that this was something that was really highlighted as problematic among those who had that awareness. So we have to have um, investigators working uh, with these uh, complaints bodies who have no continuing relationship with the institutions that they're investigating. Yeah, um, I mean, such a such an important issue. Um, Cindy, I know you were um, part of the delegation that went and spoke to the UN this week. What, what kind of questions were the UN asking in this space? Um, yes, uh, we, we were we were delighted to be able to present our findings to the Human Rights Committee in Geneva um, this week, and um, I suppose we, we were really um, really happy that the that the that the committee took um, some of our um, issue uh, some of our findings uh, seriously and has asked us particularly around racial profiling and the searches of the homes and we won't know until um, the 20th of July now but they're concluding observations to see what they have um, um, stated um, to the state. Okay I mean and some of that I mean I'm hopeful that some of the changes relating to the complaints body we're going to see in the Police and Community Safety Act, Police and Security and Community Safety Act um, when that comes in but, but there's obviously a huge amount more to be done in this space. Um, all I can do is just really thank you and your team for conducting the research. Um, it's incredibly important. Um, and I do want to note in this that you dedicated the report to the Indigenous Ethnic Minority Community of Travellers in Ireland, especially those that contributed to the study. And that's so important. Um, and it's really important that you know, that we all hear and listen to this and that that the faith that those people put in you to recount their stories and experiences and their pain and trauma, you know, is listened to, it's heard and it's acted upon. Um, and so we really, um, really, really hope that we see action in this space in the future. Um, I'm really grateful to Amanda Haynes and Cindy Joyce of UL for coming and speaking to police today um, and to talking to us about these incredibly important findings. Thanks also to Tony Gross for producing The Beat and to you, the listeners. If you've already subscribed, you're awesome. And we're very grateful for that. If you haven't, please consider doing so at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And if you can't afford to, then spread the word, retreat, recommend to your friends and so on. Um, and we'll be back with um, more episodes soon. Um, but in the meantime, take care. <laughs>